Welcome to the George Sanders Show Year End Spectacular. This is our final show for the year, and as most film shows and critics and people um, are talking about the end of 2013 in film, discussing their favorites of the year, uh, we're going to do the same, but we're going to be talking about 1933, because uh, we're super dorky like that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we're also going to be playing music throughout the show from 1933. What you heard there at the beginning of the show was from uh, one of the biggest hits of the year, both uh, as a song and as a film, uh, Walt Disney's Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, uh, which may show up later in the show as well. With me, as always, is Sean Gilman. Hello, Sean. Hello, Mike. We're doing something different today. Um, in, in addition to talking about two films, we're going to be talking about I'm No Angel from director Wesley Ruggles and written and starring uh, Mae West. And uh, Yasujiro Ozu's 1933 film, Dragnet Girl, an early film by him. We're also going to be uh, doing like an Oscar-type thing and, and, and picking our favorite director, screenplay, and uh, acting performances. Um, and then listing our top five films of this year, 1933. So uh, without further ado, we've got a lot to get to today. Uh, let's talk about Mae West and Cary Grant in I'm No Angel. Okay, that was Cab Calloway with uh, uh, one of his biggest hits uh, from 1933, Minnie the Moocher, um, which is a fitting song for uh, this film, I'm No Angel. Um, I'm No Angel is a, it stars Mae West, as we mentioned, uh, who also wrote the, the screenplay for it. Um, and she plays a 
very Mae West type character. She's a uh, a performer in a circus. Um, she does uh, you know some song and dance numbers. She's kind of a burlesque performer, and she also um, works with lions. And uh, as a means of getting extra cash, she agrees to do this new trick where she's going to stick her head in the lion's mouth. And um, she does it, becomes this big star in the New York circus. And uh, she starts moving on up. She has a penthouse and she starts being wined and dined by a series of men. And she has her way with all of them. Uh, until she settles on Cary Grant, who plays a, a very wealthy man um, who falls for her, and she in turn falls for him. Um, but the circus doesn't like this, and complications ensue where they try and split the two of them up. And uh, the film is really just an excuse for Mae West to use her famous double entendres and to you know slink around the screen and, and just, just be a big ball of fun. <laughs> um, and Mae West, I was when I was watching this, I was thinking about she, like it. She it was so lucky, it was so serendipitous that sound film came into being right around this time because Mae West, she's quite an anomaly. Um, she would never have been a star in silent movies, unlike you know W. C. Fields, who she worked with um, shortly. Uh, after this film on uh, My Little Chickadee, you know, he worked in silent films and stuff, but Mae West, like Groucho Marx or somebody, is is made for the talkies. I mean, talking is what happens in her movies, um, gloriously so. Um, but it's very interesting because Mae West, you know, come 1933 when this came out, she was pushing 40. I mean, she was not a spring chicken. Um, and so... In many respects, her her career is very singular and very interesting. Um, what do you think about the Mae West role and persona, Sean? And how do you think that works in 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 a film? Uh, I'm I'm kind of mixed on Mae West. This is this is I think the third of her movies I've seen. Uh, she also did uh, she done him wrong this year. Right with uh Cary Grant as well which I've seen and and My Little Chickadee which I've kind of like half watched. Mm-hmm. Uh I I like her. I I like certain things about her. I don't know that I really like her movies all that much. Yeah, so it, there's like a a weird kind of disconnect there. Uh and I don't know if it's if it's just a matter of of her per- persona not quite clicking with me, or if it's like all of the other things in the movies that kind of drag her down. Mm. Uh, I'm not really sure, but I I kind of feel like Mae West about Mae West like uh, say like the the old uh, Negro League baseball players who were stars in the '40s, and then when baseball was in- got integrated. Uh, kind of came into to Major League Baseball and had like half a career where you're seeing them in like their their 30s, their decline phase, and you never really get to see them at their best against the other uh, you know great baseball players of the time. I feel that's the case with Mae West that she comes into film when she's you know past her her peak as a performer. Like I I wonder if she was better in her 20s than she is in her 40s. Well, I'll tell you, when I think of Mae West, I also think of Negro baseball players. Uh, you know, I think we all make that connection. Uh, no, I know what you're saying. I, I do. Um, and 
it's funny because her character is is supposed to be this uber sexual being um and every, every single person in this film is is cannot resist her right which i think which i okay let, let me talk about may west because okay. um she she's not i don't find her sexy at all and the the way she walks that swagger that she has is not is not um an erotic thing it's it's very it reminded me a lot of like roseanne Barr. <laughs> um and uh, i i didn't uh i wouldn't i didn't i wouldn't say that it was sexy but i actually liked the way she walks as she just she just kind of it's like she's uh like she's grooving to a song that only she can hear Right. I'm not saying this is a disparaging thing. I'm just saying that yeah. um, my appreciation appreciation of her character and persona, um, which I I think she's really interesting and and I'd like to talk about it. Um, but but it's not what I think she's sold as or what she's trying to to be um, perceived as because um, I think I think she's really funny. I think some of the lines here, both in the way she delivers them and as she herself as we said wrote them um i think are are really um, some solid one-liners that i you know really laughed out loud at um and i think she yeah she does these these really interesting things but um but i don't think of her as like a sex pot and you know like um but but i think it's adorable that she's playing that role i think she's she's really it's kind of sweet (laughs) i I actually think she looks pretty good in this one like in in her other movies i have not thought so but uh i i can in this one i can kind of see the uh the appeal uh but but it is mostly just in in the way she talks and and how she's so much smarter and and more at ease and more confident than anyone else in her world yeah absolutely and she does these things that um she 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 makes these and this and especially for 1933 um these very um vulgar vocalizations i guess i'll call them where like not even when she's saying lines but scenes will end with her going and i'm not going to really do it but she says she does like an ooh like a couple of times as a scene is fading out and it is very kind of explicit and and (laughs) Um, really kind of dirty, um, and it's it's very interesting and to to see that. You yeah, know? and 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 her delivery delivery of these lines, kind of out of the side of her mouth and kind of winking and very sly, uh, is is fantastic. And she's a really really skilled comedian. Mm-hmm. But kind of the flip side of of the way that she delivers the lines, it's it's very slow. There's kind of a a, a drawl to it. Mm-hmm. And it it slows down the pace of the entire movie. And you compare it to someone like like Groucho Marx, who who uh, similarly came out of vaudeville and started in film around the same time. Groucho Marx is all about speed and piling one joke on top of another and another and another, and you just can't keep up. Oh it's, yeah, it's entirely the opposite. And I don't think it, it translates as well to film for Mae West. I agree. I mean, I th- this movie feels longer than its hour and a half, um, and it, I, yeah, it, you know, its final third, you really kind of want it to just wrap itself up. Although I, I think, on, in the abstract, the 
the idea of Mae West running a courtroom is great. Like, I think she, that's a really smart idea. And I, and I actually, I really like the final third of the film. I think, I think that's by far the best part, but it's getting to that point that just kind of drags. Along. Yeah. Yeah. My momentum by that point is, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that that part is, is worse, but it, but by that point I'm, I'm pretty exhausted with the whole sure. endeavor. Um, but yeah, that scene is really cool. And, and she's got some, some really great lines there. Um, what I love about that whole conceit, like she's, uh, she's suing Cary Grant because he has broken his promise to marry her because he thinks that she's been cheating on him when, when in fact she has not. So the, in the, the process of the trial, Cary Grant's attorney is pulling up all of these other, uh, man friends that Mae West has had in her life. And there's like a dozen guys there. And in her cross-examinations, it basically comes out that her defense is that, yeah, she's had a lot of boyfriends, but she's still a virgin. <laughs> <laughs> and so just this idea of, of Mae West proving that she's worthy to marry Cary Grant because she never actually had sex with any of these men that she's been flirting with is just really funny to me. And it, doesn't, it never really comes out and says that, but that's, like, that's what she's doing. See, I didn't really pick up that implication, really. I mean, I, um, I mean, yes, she in the cross examination, she kind of debunks, um, well, she debunks a lot of the misconceptions of her character, like, um, you know, where everybody thinks she's just a gold digger, um, and she, you know, she she proves that, you know, those were all gifts. She never asked for anything, you know. Right, and, and, and she gets all the, in the con- the conclusion of the film is that we're supposed to accept that that May West. <laughs> is has, has is has a pure virtuous love for Cary Grant. Right, she's never been interested in money or sex. Right. Well, <laughs> no. The, I do want to talk about that actually because um, it's it's interesting the how and I'm sure this was you know as a crowd pleasing kind of studio kind of thing to have because her character is is based on you know sleeping around and right that's, um, that's the whole may west persona that's the whole thing is is built on sexual innuendo and so it it feels kind of um unfortunate that the the happy ending for the movie is that she is so she is you know so-called like tamed by love and that she's like like the only way to be truly happy is to like settle down and be married and stuff um you know, I I think May West should just go on forever, just you know, just making out with every guy she sees. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, I mean, you can read it as like a an assertion of uh, you know patriarchal heteronormativity or whatever. Uh, I think it's it's more I think it's more subversive than that. I think she's just kind of undermining both our our you know not ours, but, but her world's kind of Victorian prejudices against people like Mae West by saying, Hey, even, you know, sex pots can be, can find true love and get married. Yeah. They all want the same dream. So, you know, whether it's, it's conservative or, or subversive just kind of depends on how you look at it. Yeah. I, yeah, I think, I, I think everything Mae West does is with a wink though. Oh, that goes absolutely without saying, I'm not, yeah. I'm not saying I you know I don't believe for a second that she believes anything that she says in this movie. Like I mean, even what either the the sex pot stuff or the uh, yeah, which is clearly I know I know that she was 
you know, quite like that. But at the same time, like, she's also mm-hmm. making fun of it. Um, yeah. I, and I, she's I, also, I believe that she finds Cary Grant attractive. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> hot damn. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> but for me, the stuff that I, you know, the, er- the stuff in the early scenes that I really like, um, one of my favorite bits, there are actually two bits that involve um, her menagerie of men. And one of them is very early on um, where she's showing another performer in the circus her, what I call her hunk trunk, where she's got her, her trunk with pasted on with all these pictures of men that she's known. And she's going through the, the jewelry that she's received and trying to pick out which man gave it to her and stuff. And she's got a little story about each man or whatever. And I, I think that's really fun and cute. And uh, I think she does a really great job in there. Um, and then later, there's a, a purely visual gag, which you don't think coming from a Mae West movie, but um, there's this gag of um, this kind of like tiered table thing where she's got um, these ceramic animals, and uh, with next to each one, she's got a portrait of a guy in her life, and her manager is next to a skunk. Um, you know, and I forget, you know, what Cary Grant's next to, but you know, the, you know, he's like a lion or something like that. Um, and that seems really, really funny. Like that, that, uh, that idea that she collects men, you know, um, and that she treats them like the animals in the cage that she, you know, as a lion tamer, you know, I mean, there's clearly a parallel between those two worlds of hers. Yeah. I think, I think the most, uh, with her big whip the most unbelievable thing in the film is that, is that a, a lion tamer becomes like a huge celebrity. Like I don't, <laughs> well, I mean, what, can I don't you, know. can you name any lion tamers? Uh, like she's, no, but I, she's the, the, the social event of the year in New York is that, uh, Mae West is taming lions down at the circus. Yeah. But it's 1933, you know, the depression's on, I mean, you know, like, <laughs> Jumbo, the di- the uh, dinosaur, the uh, elephant, you know, P.T. Barnum sold the hell out of that thing. Like, I mean, uh, I, I think there was a period of time where circus performers were probably, uh, you know, more in the cultural eye than they are now. I mean, I I don't think it's too far-fetched. Yeah, I think it's a stretch. Um, right. What's your, do you have a favorite one-liner? I do. I, I I do. I wrote a few down, um, but my favorite is is the uh, her suitor prior to Cary Grant. Um, he goes to visit her backstage, their first meeting, and he leaves behind his cane um, in her room deliberately so that he can go back to see her on his own because he was with a group of people. And uh, he comes in and he says, "I forgot my cane," and she. She says, "Oh, let me help you find it." And he says, "Oh, I know where where it was." And she says, and "She says, you mean you planted that stick? <laughs> it's just the dirtiest thing you could get away with in the movies." I mean, that was just raunchy. Um, <laughs> but anyway, what was your favorite line? She she has she has a lot of them. My my favorite though is not is not dirty at all. It's just. Uh, just a dumb joke that I think is hilarious. Uh, somebody uh, is says to her, I think it's uh, it's the guy Slick, who uh, uh, she had been seeing in the beginning of the film. Uh, her two bit boyfriend. Oh no, it's not actually. It's it's Edward Arnold, her her manager. Uh, at one point, says to her, "I changed my mind," and she says, "Does it work any better?" <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> I do like that one too. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. There's another line that, that I just, you know, it's, it's a simple one, but she, uh, she gets involved, you know, um, Slick and her, you know, end up, Slick ends up beating up this, this guy, um, and taking the rap for it or whatever. And she needs help from her attorney. And they ask her, uh, someone says, how are you mixed up in this? And she says, like an olive in a dry martini, which is just like, that's some smooth talking dame stuff right there. I mean, I'm just sorry. That's just great. So uh, what do you think of, of this movie as a whole? This is uh, considered her best film. Like, on, uh, I don't on... think it's considered her, but I mean, I think it, it was her most successful film. Uh, what, um, what is it, considered her it, best, if not this? Uh, it depends. Arguably, Klondike Annie, which I haven't seen. Uh, uh, Raoul Walsh's, yeah, Raoul Walsh's film from 1936, which is based on something she did on stage in the 20s, and apparently, it's it's a lot more um, meaty in terms of the institutions it's taking on and stuff. And I haven't seen it, so I can't speak much to it. But I think it, I've, I've heard that that's more of an artistic achievement um, than something like this, which was a huge financial success. That, I think that this would make like, sense being as seen as how well, well, Raoul Walsh is a, a great director where Wesley Ruggles is, is merely the third best Ruggles <laughs> in the 1930s. Yeah. So, yeah, but this, I, I do agree. I mean, I, I can't disagree. This is was her big, biggest um commercial success um and yeah i mean 1933 as we will discuss later in the show was a great year not just for film but for comedies in general and we'll discuss i'm sure at least a couple of those coming yeah, up it's in- kind of one of it's one of the very first years of, of screwball comedy where it's just kind of getting a, a foothold in in hollywood and yeah. just kind of taking over yeah and so as a film you know like we both said this kind of plods along um and wears out its welcome. I, I, I don't want to say it wears out. Like, I, I never disliked a moment of this movie, but it does get a little tedious. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, think, it, all, I think it's worth watching because, because yeah. Mae West is such a, an interesting and, and unique performer. But where, you know... W.C. Fields is also an interesting, unique performer. The Marx Brothers are also interesting, unique performers. I think their movies are much better than hers, and and they're her contemporaries. They also came from from vaudeville to to film, right? Well, yeah, I, I look forward to watching more of her stuff because I I had seen bits of it. You know, I've seen. I'm pretty sure I've seen all of My Little Chickadee, um, but it was 20 years ago, um, and so I don't remember it much at all and i so i got this from scarecrow in the may west collection box set which has five or six movies on there including this one it doesn't have klondike annie which is a shame because the more i read about that one i was interested in it but um i you know i i like her persona i like her character and and i do think you know i mean she really is a pioneer um you know for a female um writer i mean you know you weren't getting i mean people talk about nowadays the the lack of um females in 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 terms of you know writing and directing and stuff in cinema i mean it's a constant issue obviously but um but for 1933 to have someone be the star performer um and also conceive and and write the whole screenplay and and be 
I mean, it it sounds silly for it's me to. A, it's to, unusual for a, a female star to be also writing, but but female screenwriters were not all that uncommon. I, of the silent era, I think I've, I've read that that women wrote half of the Hollywood movies. Yeah, but like 1920s. as but but yeah, but to be this kind of all inclusive package, sure, sure, um, to be the the writer and star. I mean, you don't even get that unusual. with them. The Marx Brothers. I mean, the Marx Brothers did a lot of improv and stuff, but they never. I mean, you couldn't contain. <laughs> you couldn't get the Marx Brothers into a room to write a script in the first place. Um, and they were really blessed to have, um, you know, some of the best writers. You know, S. J. Perlman and people to 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 kind of give some semblance of a, a <laughs> you know a story, a script to their to their sure, work. Sure, sure. I'm I'm just saying it's not all that unusual to have a female screenwriter, but to have a female screenwriter also be a star. Right, unusual, um, and and to and to be such a a unique one at that, you know, because yeah. um, there's never been anybody like Mae West before or since, you yeah. know. You know, she she lived, she didn't die until 1980. Yeah, she was really old. Yeah, uh, well, she was 80, 87. Yeah, which uh, is weird to think about Mae West in the 1970s. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously absolutely. her her film career did not last that long, but. Yeah, it's yeah. just odd to think about. She's basically the same <laughs> age as John Ford. Yeah, it's cra- it's very, it's very weird. Yeah. It's very very strange. With that, we're gonna uh, we're gonna lead in now. This is another difference uh, with this show is we're gonna actually talk about both films before we get to our countdowns and all that stuff. So we're gonna lead in here with what song did we pick, Sean? For uh... Uh, this is Duke Ellington's big hit of nineteen thirty three. Uh, in honor of Mae West and uh, the stars of Dragnet Girl, Sophisticated Lady. The idea that we had for the show was that we would each pick a film that we hadn't seen from 1933 for us to watch, and and you picked I'm No Angel, and my my choice is uh, is one of uh, the least known Yasujiro Ozu films, uh, Dragnet Girl, 
from early in his career. It's a, uh, it's basically a gangster movie from a director who's mostly known for, for creating kind of family dramas that are occasionally leavened by, by fart jokes. So, yeah, this is, this is really an anomaly. Um, when I was, when I was thinking about the plot leading, you know, about the, Talking about it on the show, like, I, I, was this the the right Ozu? <laughs> yeah, it, and it's uh, it's from early in his career, and as as Ozu went along, he basically stripped away everything but but you know certain core dramatic situations within families, and at the same time, stripped away lots of elements of of film style, like you know tracking shots. Mm-hmm. or overhead shots or shots from any angle other than, you know, like four feet off the ground. And, and, but at this early stage of his career, he's still doing all kinds of crazy things. And he really is. And so if you, if you've only seen his, his later movies, watching an early, early thirties Ozu film can be, can be pretty shocking. Like you, it, you'll, you know, be wondering if it actually is the same guy, but, but it is. So I guess uh, we should kind of set up the plot. It's basically a, a film noir style plot where there's a, a gangster and his girlfriend, the dragnet girl, and the, the gangster is an ex-boxer and a young, a young man, an aspiring boxer who's kind of, kind of weak and kind of uh, dumb, uh, really admires this gangster and wants to be part of his gang. But his older sister is uh, a very pretty record store clerk, and she's looking out for him. So she goes to the gangster and tries and gets him to kick her brother out of the gang. And in in meeting this record store girl, the gangster and his girlfriend resolve to become better people, and so of course they pull off one last heist. Right. That's uh, you know you can't you can't get out of the game without playing the game once more. Yeah, if, if, if we've learned anything from movies, yeah, and it's uh, it's a it's an odd movie. Like I'm I'm still not not quite sure what to make of it. There's a lot that that Ozu is kind of experimenting with, and and some of it I think works really well. Like there there are certain kind of transitions between scenes where he'll he'll cut to like later on he'd be known for like these pillow shots where he'd. Uh, uh, pad the in-between sections of scenes with shots of like unrelated scenery, like a like a harbor or a street sign or something, and he kind of does that here, but uh, they're more they're more actually involved in like the set and the story, the the in-between shots. But it's really kind of elegant the way that he that he cuts around them and kind of pivots from one object to another scene. Uh, I like that a lot. Uh, there's some weird kind of uh, film noirish kind of expressionist shots of like shadows and uh and venetian blinds and and hats and and clocks that uh are, is very prescient for a 1933 film like these have become uh standard parts of american crime movies 15 years later but you don't you don't see them so much in in american gangster movies at the same time mm-hmm. what 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 did you make of of the film yeah so kind of like i uh, i'm no angel it it got a little tedious as it went along. Like um, there's a scene in their apartment where they're kind of hashing it out. The, uh, the gangster and his girl. Um, and it seems to, to, to really kind of lose momentum um, in the last like third of the movie. And then 
once, and we can get into this more later in the discussion, but um, once they decide to, to, to go straight, as they keep saying, and, and, and be good and stuff, there, there's like this constant, like, <laughs> I don't know, like, the girlfriend at that point in the movie really started to annoy me. Um, and, and I could just, I can tell you why in a second, but like, it, they kept going back to her saying, let's try and be good. Let's try and be good. And it got a little repetitive uh, for me. Um, it was interesting because at that point in the movie, um, it's clear that she's absolutely insane. <laughs> um, because, and I'm just going to break it down now. Um, she, so first she gets really jealous um, because her boyfriend, the the thug, um, kind of falls for the you know pretty record store girl who's who's virtuous and sweet and doesn't have a you know a spiteful bone in her body and stuff and she's just looking out for her brother so um dragnet girl gets uh, very jealous at this and and she gets really mad at him uh and then she goes to to meet this girl and she she first falls for her too well, no, but first she says, aren't you going to, like, kill me? <laughs> aren't you going to, like, do you want to shoot me? She offers her a gun. Uh-huh. And and the cute girl's like, no, why would I do that, you know? And she's like, well, then I'm going to shoot you. And and then, and then and like, two seconds later, she's like, you know what? I'm really into you. And so she gets into her. And then um, then they go back, They and they kind of fight. They kind of have this, they hash it out. And she eventually says, let's go straight. Let's be good. Uh, after this one last heist. And so they do the heist. But then as soon as they do the heist, he tells her, go pack your things and we're going to go and we're going to, you know, start this new life. And she finally has like this moment of realization. She's like, well, I've got to turn myself in. You know, I'm going to let them arrest me. Right. And he says, why are you going to do that? I'm heading out. And she follows him. And she's like, no, we've got to be good. We've got to go to jail and then we can start our lives. And he's like, well, you can go to jail, but I'm not. And then she shoots him. <laughs> Then she like she's well, like she, I want to shoot him in the leg, but still she shoots the guy <laughs> yeah. because he's like I'm not going to jail for this. That's stupid, you know. Um, and then she you know has another crisis of faith, and then they go to jail and it's over. So anyway, uh, yeah, her I think, character. I think, I think that's really a really fascinating kind of character arc, but I can yeah. see how it, it you know it doesn't make it 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 reads as crazy. Yeah, and maybe it was my fault for I I didn't pick up on her being crazy for the first half of the movie. I thought she was kind of actually really cool. Like I thought she was, you well, know. I, I don't I don't think she is crazy. Like, yeah. <laughs> Some crazy stuff. That's I, th- going I think on. there's I think there's a logic to her crazy actions, and it's basically it's that it's that they're they are these these two people who live in this very sordid, you know, gangster world, and they when they encounter this really pure you know, moral girl, they don't know how to react to that. Oh, absolutely. I know. And, I understand and it kinda, that. It, it throws their whole world out, out of whack. And, you know, so they want to, they, you know, initially she's like, you know, we should be more like this girl. Let's get a fresh start. And, and in order to, to fund their fresh start, they're going to commit another heist because that's all they can do. And then after they've committed the heist, she comes to this realization that, you know, they've done this bad thing and they need to atone for it. So her and wanting to, to let them get arrested is a kind of like, like a, a religious kind of action. Like they need to be punished for their bad, the bad that they've done before they can get a, a true fresh start. 
So that's why she wants to, them to get arrested, and that's why she shoots him, so that he can have a chance at a fresh start, too. Well, you can explain it. I understand it, but it's still freaking crazy. I'm just, I'm sorry. Like, you know, he comes to the same realization as she does. Like, he's like, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to go, we're going to go straight. Like, you know, you can tell that he wants to do it too, but he doesn't have these wildly um, emotionally erratic, um, you know, changes of heart and, and, and weirdness or whatever. I mean, I don't want to dwell on this. I'm not, I'm not saying that this that the ending like ruined the movie or anything like that. I, I think this is a solid movie and I think there's a lot of interesting things going on. And I think, um, directorially, like I think it's, you know, I like, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of Ozu as we've talked about in the show before. Um, but you know, like Tokyo story and stuff, crazy, awesome, good stuff, but it's, it's really cool to see him experimenting with stuff here that you would never expect. You know, there's this, there's the one shot, um, from outside the car, the two of them are in the backseat of a car and they're driving and he films it from like the, the fender or something. And he's filming the, like the headlight of the car. Yeah. It's like the, he's, uh, it's the cameras on like the, the, the side rail, like that little platform step right. in the 1930s cars. And it's looking at the, the backside of the headlight, which is this Chrome that's really shiny and it's reflecting. And Never in a million years, if you if you put that, if you just froze that frame and asked who shot that, <laughs> I mean, I'd give you like a hundred directors before Ozzy, but it's really cool. Yeah, and there's like a, there's repeated shots of of this yarn on the floor of their apartment that, as as the film goes on, their apartment gets repeatedly uh, uh, trashed yeah. as one or the or the other of them, you know says they're going to 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 pack and and start to leave and this ball of yarn that's kind of this the symbol of the uh the dragnet girl's uh uh aspirations of of domesticity just becomes increasingly tangled on on the floor and and ozu at at dramatic moments will cut away from the two actors to show their feet and the yarn kind of tangling around their feet Mm-hmm. Well, and he also um, a repeated motif in this is uh, circular objects. You you get the clocks, as you mentioned. Um, you get rings, uh, both rings that go on your finger, but then also the rings in the boxing gym that you kind of like use as like uh, to pull yourself up and do whatever kind of uh, you know aerobic exercise you need with that. Um, you get uh, that headlight that we mentioned um, and the hats. The hats, the, the racks of of hats that he'll he'll pan along, and I, and for once, uh, I actually think that not only is this intentional, but I but I think there's a, a meaning to it, and I think all of these circular objects um, are are signs of um, things that can um, what what's the word I'm trying to think of? Hang on a second, I had it. Um, my dog just got on my lap, so no, <laughs> I'm preoccupied with this. For they're, they're, they're traps. They're yeah, they're yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't steal my thunder here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they're things that trap these people. Uh, you sure. know, the clock uh, represents you know the business world and how you know rigid that is. The end of the movie it becomes becomes explicit at the very end because the lovers are embracing one another and um, that you see their arms around each other and then from outside the frame. What comes in, but a handcuff, another circular thing, and it, and it, and it locks to both of them, and uh, and that's the end of the movie. Is they're now imprisoned uh, for their deeds or whatever, and they're finally tied down. And the ring also um, that's very pivotal in the beginning of the feature, where um, she 
she gets a ring from her boss who's who has the hots for her and there's all these you know implications of what that implies you know what, what that means um and she she's quick to dismiss it as you know he's just flirting with me and blah 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 but obviously you know he means it as something more and she uses that later against him you know when they ultimately pull off this final you know heist and she she just robs him blind <laughs> Yeah, I, I think you're right about about these circles. And, and there's also at the end, uh, after the police arrest them, they've been chasing them through the streets from their apartment. And the various uh, police wave at each other as they go kind of down the streets. Uh, the police are, are positioned like a, each one is like on a different corner and they're a block away. And they like wave at each other to let them know that they are caught. And I'm pretty sure it goes in a circle. Like as as they fled, they basically just run in a circle. Uh-huh. But also this this idea of being of being caught in a loop. Uh, the only way for them to get out of this loop is to act crazy, <laughs> because the whole logic of the, of that world, you know, traps them in, right. in this place. They are they are gangsters, and and that's where they are, and they can only break out of it by doing something crazy. Right. No, I, I I get that. I understand that. Uh, so the the lead girl is played by uh, Kanuyo Tanaka, who's one of the uh, the the great actresses of, of Japanese film. She's she's best known for her uh, films in the nineteen fifties with uh, Kenji Mizuguchi. At least at least in the U.S., she is uh, the Life of Aharu and Ujetsu and Sancho the Bailiff. But yep. uh, I really love uh, Sumiko Mizukubo, who plays the the sister and she's she's adorable and she's also in uh, another film from 1933 by by Mikio Naruse called Apart from You where she plays a, a similar kind of uh, kind of angelic part where she she changes the life of the the lead character and she's she's just fantastic and this is kind of a, a sad story in 1935 she uh, uh, tried to kill herself apparently she was having relationship problems and after that she she never acted again she basically just retired from film so the, these are uh, some of her last films, but she's but you know really what? good. I think she's she's very good. Um, but and this is kind of the I'm, I I'm I who's to say I can't I can't really go say for sure. But um, kind of the flip side of Mae West is she's she's very great here, but I can see her working really well in silent movies. Like she's got a very, a very good silent film actress face. She's got, you know, expressive eyes and, um, her face says a lot, you know? And so in a way it's kind of nice that she, uh, you know, I, I think she, she, she did what she could when she could. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying. You know, I feel really bad that she tried to, you know, kill herself. That's a bummer. Thanks for bringing that up, Sean. I really appreciate that. Um, I and yeah, I'd like to see more of her stuff. I think she's she's very good here. Yeah, I I don't I don't know I don't know enough about Japanese cinema, obviously, to know if there was like the same kind of split in stardom between like silent and and sound stars. Uh, a lot of the the stars that I know from the the 40s and 50s were that had started in the thirties seemed just fine. Like, like Kanuya Tanaka or, uh, uh, Hideko Takamini, who's the star of, uh, many of, uh, Nerissa's late films was like a child actress in the thirties and in, in silence. And, and Ozu's, uh, very frequent star, uh, Chisha Rio is actually in Dragnet Girl. He plays one of the, the policemen and he's barely recognizable, but, but he's there. 
So I don't, I don't know if, uh, if they had the same issues with like a, like a John Gilbert type star, not being able right. to, to make it in sound films. Right. I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying, uh, all I'm saying is she has a really good silent film face. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> she is. She's, she's very pretty. <laughs> Shia is saying she's got a face for any kind of film. All right. All right. Well, speaking of, of faces and, and sounds, uh, this is uh, Ginger Rogers singing the Gold Digger song, We're in the Money, from the Gold Diggers of 1933. And when we come back, we'll talk about some of our favorite performances of So what we're going to do right now on our uh, 1933 Year in Review Spectacular is we're going to hand out some awards, but we're not going to do uh, actor and actress. We're just going to combine them into one gender-neutral category because that's the way we are. And I like the way we are. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do we're gonna do just uh, uh, four categories here: supporting performance, lead performance, screenplay, and director. And then we're gonna take another break, and then we'll talk about uh, each of our top five movies of the year. So, like I said, we just heard uh, Ginger Rogers with "Where in the Where in the Money," and I'm curious if she uh, made your list for supporting performance of 1933. Does she get uh, it from you? Uh, Ginger Rogers did not make my list. Uh, I, I, I do love Ginger Rogers to death. I think she's just a phenomenal performer, um, but she did not uh, make the cut. Um, so my pick uh, for supporting actor is uh, Mae Robson, actually, from a film we talked about just recently, uh, Lady for a Day. Interesting. Uh, she plays the lady. Um, and when we discussed the film at the time, we both mentioned how it's unfortunate that... Um, she kind of gets shunted aside um, in the second half of the movie. Um, and that's why I put her as supporting because um, oh, she's I think def- it's for- definitely a supporting performance. It is. Um, 
but in the first 30 minutes of that movie, she she's running it. Um, and she sets the, the plot in motion. And I think she's just phenomenal. Like, she really sells um, the sadness um, and desperation of this of this character who clings to an impossible dream. Um, and, and I, yeah, I think she's, I think she's just stupendous. And I, you know, I don't want to go on, on and on about it because I talked about it during that show, but it was kind of a revelation. I wasn't expecting to be so uh, bowled over by her performance there, but, uh, I think it's, I, she was nominated. I think we said at the time, uh, yeah, I think she was for an Oscar. Uh, yeah. And, uh, I think it was, you know, well-deserved. So who did you pick supporting? Well, I actually, I actually prefer uh, Ned Sparks, who we talked about in that episode from from Lady for a Day. Uh, uh-huh. I, I would consider him. But uh, and uh, on on my website, I'm doing like a, a really full version of this with like f- five nominees in each category and all of the Oscar categories. And, and Ginger Robert Rogers makes that list. But uh, if I only have to pick one supporting performance from 1933, I, I have to go with Harpo Harpo Marx from Duck Soup. And uh, Harpo is just an—he's just an amazing performer, and this is his best, I think, showcase. Uh, anything having to do with the peanut vendor, just his <laughs> random—you know—acts of destruction when uh, when the guy that he's ostensibly working for is trying to make a phone call, and he—you know—he keeps pulling props out of his pants. He never once plays a harp. Which is always a, a real drag in any Marx Brothers film. Oh, oh no! And hiding, oh, hiding in, in the oh, bathtub no. with the the peanut vendor guy. It's just oh. everything Harpo does in Duck Soup oh. is is makes me laugh. I I just love him so much in this movie. I he's phenomenal. Um, He's he's phenomenal when he plays the frickin' harp, uh, sir. I, I take umbrage with that statement. Um, I've always loved uh, a, a Chico piano piece. I've always loved, uh, you know, I think my favorite Harpo... Oh, I don't know. Let me think. What's my favorite Harpo harp section? I, I really like it... Um, in Animal Crackers, when he does it, he's in the courtyard and he and he plays it. Um, but also Horse Feathers, when he does the harp version of uh, Everybody Says I Love You, I think is really good too. But anyway, uh, yeah. yeah the the reason Marks- why Duck Soup is the best Marx Brothers film is because it doesn't have any of the solo musical performances in it. That's not true. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I disagree completely. Uh, but, I mean, uh, Duck Soup is, is their best film. I agree with that. Uh, but no, the, I, I do want to single out uh, Edgar Kennedy, um, who plays the peanut vendor. Yeah. Uh, or, well, the lemonade vendor. Uh, lemonade vendor. Yeah, because Chico and Harpo are running the, the peanut stand. Excuse but, uh, God, that guy, oh, he, he is the best slow burn you'll ever see on film. I mean, the, <laughs> the look on his face when Harpo Marx climbs into his lemonade uh you know bowl and with his bare feet and starts dancing in the lemonade oh my gosh it's just it's just one for the ages so i that's a great pick harper marks is uh an absolute genius and i i for um this christmas this sorry i should t- i should shut up now <laughs> this, this is really hard there there's a lot of great supporting performances from 1933 and and i i promised you i would only say one so i'm not going to list all of the ones that i really like so i'm just gonna leave it at harpo you can find that on your blog you can find it on my blog what is your pick for lead performance 
my pick for lead performance, and this is the one where I'm I am gonna cheat. Um, you cheated uh, last time we we did something like this with where you picked like fifty movies uh, for a top five. Uh, so I am cheating, but I'm cheating for a good reason um, because the two performances that I'm picking as my lead, um, they're kind of they're odd performances to pick. Um, one because it's not actually uh, a human being acting, uh, and that's King Kong. Uh, from King Kong, when Peter Jackson's King Kong came out, and this happens a lot when Andy Serkis plays a, a, a digital character. Um, I think this happened with the the recent thing. People are talking about should he be nominated for uh, actor, even though he's not on screen, but he's he's embodying this character. And I think the same goes for the the work that was done uh, for the original King Kong, the stop motion animation, because that is a fully realized character you're getting on screen in that movie. And it's a mixture of motion um, along with, you know, this giant um, kind of animatronic head piece um, that you're getting. And that character is so... Uh, I can think of so many moments in that movie where I am reading so much emotion in that character based on when he's chained up in the theater at the end of the film. I mean, it's just heartbreaking. So... And I'm not going to go on too long because I have another person to talk about here too. But uh, King Kong, I'm going King Kong for King Kong. Uh, and my second lead performance is an, uh, is one that's also the actor is not really on screen, uh, and it's Claude Rains uh, from The Invisible Man uh, because I love, and you and I have talked about this on the show before. I love Claude Rains. Period. I mean, in anything he's in, notorious. I mean, he's just fantastic. But there's no Claude Rains performance that's quite like his performance in The Invisible Man because he plays just the biggest jerk. <laughs> he's he's so unlikable. It's it's awesome. He's so incredibly unlikable, um, and and he's not. You don't see his face until the end of the movie. I mean, literally the final shot of the movie. Um, and so all it is is his voice. I mean, it's purely Claude Rains's voice. Um, demonstrating all of this about this egotistical um maniacal you know mad scientist and and it's this it's the uh role that actually you know brought him to prominent um, a star and uh i think for good reason i think he's he's just wonderful there yeah it's uh it's a terrific performance it's it's one of my nominees but uh uh for for me, nineteen thirty three is about Barbara Stanwyck and and Babyface, and not just Babyface, but also the bitter tea of General Yen, and uh, there there are two performances and of completely opposite characters. Because in I don't know, have you seen either of these movies? I, I have not seen either movie. I love Barbara Stanwyck. I will I will come out and say that. Uh, well, in Babyface, it's a uh, it's kind of a, a lurid uh, pre code. Uh, melodrama kind of thing where she's a, a young girl who literally sleeps her way to the top of a corporation and then uh, you know has her comeuppance at the end but really you don't believe it and uh, she's actually inspired to sleep her way to the top by reading some Nietzsche <laughs> that which, gets me in the mood yeah which is pretty awesome I'll tell you that much and The Bitter Tea of General Yen is a, a Frank Capper movie where she's she's kidnapped by a Chinese warlord and she's 
the opposite of the character from Babyface. She's like this this virginal missionary type girl who becomes, you know, in, increasingly attracted to the the uh, the Chinese warlord. So it's this weird kind of. Uh, it's this great uh, dichotomy and, and you get both sides of Barbara Stanwyck. And I, I think she's the, the greatest actress in film history. And, and these two performances from very early in her career show that kind of, that kind of range and her ability to be both bad and, and good and do them both so compellingly. Like I, I love Barbara Stanwyck and she's, she's fantastic. Yeah. She's absolutely fantastic. Uh, you should see those movies. I I've actually I I've wanted to see Babyface in particular for uh, I used to work in a video store and this was oh my god how long ago was this this was like ninety nine or two thousand and I I for some reason that was a film that I kept seeing that we had on the shelf and I kept meaning to take it home and uh, for one reason or another I never I never did but uh, yeah I I I knew I do need to see it. Yeah, it also features a very young John Wayne as one of her conquests. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, so next category is best screenplay, adapted, original, whatever. What was the best written film of 1933? Uh, I, I don't know how you could pick anything but Duck Soup. Um, and like we said earlier in the show, a lot of the lines in the film in the end in any Marx Brothers film aren't actually, weren't written down. There was a vague... You know, there was a, there was a script at some point, but the Marx Brothers uh, were so adept at at uh, improvisation and and um, that a lot of a lot of the stuff is is made up on the fly or stuff that they you know did through take after take after take. Um, but or, or stuff from their vaudeville days, like the yeah, the they, whole mirror sequence is something they've been doing since they were kids. And yeah, and, but. And I'd like to highlight here because you talked about Harpo uh, and, and he's fantastic. Um, and and most anytime you see Harpo in a movie, you know the gags that he did, he just he came up with. You know they would just like leave a spot in the screenplay and say Harpo does something funny, and he would just you know. But I want to highlight uh, both Chico and and I know it's Chico, but Chico and uh, and Groucho um, because I mean this movie is. It's the most quotable movie I've ever seen. Obviously, um, it's it's my favorite comedy of all time, and uh, Rufus T. Firefly in particular is is just the greatest. I mean, I I I, I can't talk about it too much because I'm just going to start quoting the entire movie at you. Um, and I've seen it so many, so many times. And my the most recent time I saw it, uh, I saw it at SIF. Um, and my favorite line in the movie actually that time was when uh, Ambassador Trentino's secretary comes in the room, and she all she <laughs> all she says is "Sir Ciccolini and Pinky are here," which to, to me, knowing that Chico and Harpo Marx are are on the other side of that door, there's nothing more exciting for me in a movie knowing that those two idiots are about to walk through your door. Um, but I do okay. The one thing I'm going to highlight from the, from the screenplay, and Grouch always gets the love, so I'm going to say this about Chico: the the bit between Trentino and Chico when they're talking about shadowing Firefly, and uh, and and he, and he says he does the bit. He says, "You give us the picture, and you know what we do? Within one hour, we we lose the picture." 
that's a good work, right, boss? And then he talks about, you know, following them. And he says, we follow this man. We follow him down to this house. And there he meets a woman. And Trentino's, like, you know, hanging on Chico's every word. <laughs> and he says, really? Who do you think this woman was? Chico says, I, I think it was his wife. And, and, and Trentino says, but Firefly's not married. And Chico pauses and he says, you know what I think, boss? I think we followed the wrong guy. <laughs> oh, you can cut that out, but that's just the funniest thing in the world to me. I no, just love it's, it. It's it's my pick too. It's it's the obvious choice. <laughs> it's it's the best written film of 1933, and and we're we're both in agreement that it's it's one of our favorite films. And I don't. We talked about it on the uh, the top the top ten episode where we did our our sight and sound top tens. And I don't remember if I if I said the last the last time I had watched it, uh, where that was. It was at the uh, the Charles Schultz Museum in Santa Rosa, California. You did not mention. And uh, Charles Schultz, obviously the the creator of Peanuts, and and at the museum that's n- near his uh, near his home, they have a little screening room with a little digital projector and. Uh, a couple a couple of times a month they'll play one of his favorite movies and and Duck Soup was one of his favorite movies so we were there at the museum and saw that it was playing so we went to to see it so it's a Friday night in Santa Rosa California little you know dinky digital projector in this little dinky screening room there must have been like a hundred people in this auditorium all laughing to oh this, yeah like you know very cheap DVD projection of Duck Soup. And oh yeah, it's just—it's such a great movie. Uh, that, there's no movie I've seen more in my life, and I can say this with absolute certainty: I, I've never seen a movie more times than I've seen Duck Soup, and uh, it will be coming up later in the show. Yeah, so maybe we I'm, should continue sure. on. on. <laughs> uh, um, so the the last category is the best director. It was the best director of 1933? Yes. Um, and I'm going. Uh, I'm going across the water here. Um, I think all my picks so far have been uh, American productions. Yeah, um, but I'm actually going with uh, Fritz Lang, uh, who in 1933 released *The Testament of Dr. Mabuza*, which uh, is a film that I have have liked for a long time. Um, I forced us to run it at Metro Classics, and uh, it's a really you know we were talking about. Uh, Dragnet Girl and how it's kind of a, a, a proto noir type thing and it's and it's really ahead of its time um, for what it's doing with this kind of crime genre elements and stuff and uh, the same thing can be said about Dr. Mabuza but uh, but Mabuza also has this really interesting supernatural element to it that kind of gives it this otherworldly feeling because the the character the main character is in prison the entire movie but he orchestrates this empire of crime uh through some form of like telekinesis or uh some sort of metaphysical transference and uh it's really spooky stuff but then on top of that you get this crime movie that has these you know cliffhanger moments where people are going to drown in a base a flooding basement and and uh it's just i think it's just wonderful it's a wonderful atmospheric film uh from fritz lang yeah it it is a really cool film it's, it's not one of my favorite fritz langs but but uh i like it a lot he's he's such a great director he's just had so many other films that i like a little bit more sure uh my pick is uh 
I, I'm I'm going to cheat. It's uh, uh-huh. it's Busby Berkeley, who did not actually direct. That is a cheat. It, he did not actually direct any films this year, but he was the musical director for three of of the best musicals ever made: Forty uh, Second Street, Gold Diggers of 1933, and Footlight Parade. All of which came out this year, and all of which feature just ridiculous extended musical sequences by Berkeley that just kind of define him as as a director. And when he would you know actually start directing his own movies uh, a couple years later they would all be built around these these elaborately you know surreal uh set pieces geometric uh formations of of women and dancers and just bizarre sets there's uh i don't know what my favorite of them is it might be the uh the opening one from gold diggers in 1933 where where ginger sings uh in pig latin and all of the the girls are wearing clothes made out of coins uh, it might be from the from the end of uh, Footlight Parade, which is it's uh, an elaborate like Joseph von Sternberg parody called uh, I think Shanghai Lil. Uh, they're just they're so great. He can it, it it takes Busby Berkeley to make Ruby Keeler and Dick Powell interesting, and he manages to do it in all three of these films. So yeah, I, I hear you. My my problem with the I mean, at least 42nd Street is that the Busby Berkeley parts are fantastic and then the other parts are not so much. And so as like whole movies, they don't work for me as well. Um, But the Busby Berkeley stuff is, you're right. I mean, it's, it's just absolutely stunning. Yeah, and, and, and you know the other stuff suffers in comparison with the weirdness of the Busby Berkeley because it's it's mostly just kind of back standard backstage musical stuff and and some of the actors are good and some of them are are less good but it it depends a lot on these musical numbers and they're they're so much better than you know the the dumb romance with with the Dick Powell character mm-hmm. in all of these movies like the the best bits of the films are the kind of uh, asides that you get from the supporting actor, from Ginger Rogers, from from Joan Blondell, from Aline McMahon, uh, from Ned Sparks, who was also great in, in Lady for a Day. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's all about Busby Berkeley. <laughs> uh, with that, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to listen to a song from 42nd Street, uh, and then we're going to return with our uh, top five countdown of the best films of 1933. You'll find a thoroughfare It's the part of little old New York That runs in two times square A crazy quilt that Wall Street Jack built If you've got a little time to spare I'd like to take you there Come and meet those dancing feet On the avenue I'm taking you to 42nd Street Here's a beach of dancing feet Thank you. 
All right, welcome back to the show. Um, now we're going to talk about uh, our respective top five films from the year 1933. Um, so let's just get right to it. Sean, uh, what is your number five film? Uh, number five is The Gold Diggers of 1933. It's, it's uh, well, 42nd Street kind of gets the, uh, has the higher reputation of being like the, the classier of the Busby Berkeley films. Uh, I think it's because it has kind of an ambivalent ending where like the director doesn't really see his big triumph. He's just like sitting out in the rain, uh, you know, contemplating his next show. And, you know, it's, it's more of, of an artistic kind of prestige kind of ending. Whereas gold diggers in 1933 is just kind of a, a silly, uh, uh, musical comedy film, except it's got this weird massive production number about the depression grafted on to the end of it. So it's just, it's a, it's a really kind of fascinating film for me as, as this bizarre expression of the depression in film, whereas it's kind of zany comedy, but also really serious, you know, economic problems behind it, but really zany comedy. So mm-hmm. I, I, I just I like I like 42nd Street a lot. I like Footlight Parade a lot, but but Gold Diggers just kind of gets the 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 edge for me. I love the the relations of the the four main women, uh, Ruby Keeler, Aline McMahon, Joan Blundell, and and of course Ginger Rogers, who, I mean, she sings "We Are We're in the Money" in Pig Latin, <laughs> as you've mentioned. <laughs> it's the most yeah. amazing thing I I've seen yeah, in a she's... long time. She's absolutely incredible. Yeah. What What uh, is your number five? Well, uh, you know, I I'm I haven't seen how many movies have you seen from 1933? You uh, can 44, I think. 44. Yeah. So I, you know, I have a respectable like dozen or so. So I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not feeling too bad. But but my top five is going to be movies that I have talked about on the show. Um, so I, I'm not going to say too much about them. But my number five pick is. Uh, a film I saw for the first time because of the show, uh, and it's Sons of the Desert, uh, Laurel and Hardy, which uh, is my favorite Laurel and Hardy feature length. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of features uh, of of the group, um, but uh, but they they kind of run the gamut. I mean, there there's some that are I saw Way Out West um, later this year, and uh, it it's not good. <laughs> um, uh, but, Sons, but Sons of the Desert is is just a really crackerjack comedy, and it and it's uh, you know as we said earlier in the show, um, I'm No Angel and Duck Soup, and there, you know there are so many great comedies from this year, and this one really you know holds holds its own uh, amongst some really great company. So uh, I, I think it's really good. Yeah, it's a fantastic film. It's it's one of the best ones that that I've seen for. For this show, I think. Yeah. What is your number four, Sean? Uh, my number four is uh, Ernst Lubitsch's Design for Living, which is basically about uh, Miriam Hopkins living in a menage a trois with Gary Cooper and Frederick March. And then it's, you know, it's happened to all of us at some point yeah. in our lives. And then, and really then cool. she gets sick of them and threatens to marry Edward Everett Horton. <laughs> So, you know, it, it's pretty awesome. Like, it, it's, not, it's, it's not as good, I think, as, as Ernst Lubitsch's great 1932 film, Trouble in Paradise, which is my favorite film from that year. But 
it's pretty great. And and if if you only know Gary Cooper from from like his nineteen fifties movies, like High Noon or you know Man of the West or you know stuff like that, where he's an old man, uh, you really owe it to yourself to to check out some some early thirties Gary Cooper because not only is he a remarkably pretty young man, he's a really good, really charming actor. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's one, it's, it's one I've been meaning to see and, you know, I, um, I need to see more Lubitsch period because I, I've only seen a handful it, and they've been weird ones. You know, I saw the doll for the first time this year, which is a silent one he did in 1919, uh, which I just thought was just great and very different from, you know, the later stuff, um, some of which we've talked about on the show before, um, yeah, but I, I do. I haven't see, seen that one, but I've heard that it's that it's really good. It's it's pretty awesome. It's pretty damn awesome. Uh, well, my number four uh, is a film that we also talked about on the show, and it also came up earlier today. It's uh, Lady for a Day, um, which I liked. And when we talked about it, I did like it a little bit more than you did. Um, I think it's just a really great, solid, um, charming movie that you know it it. it it tugs at the heartstrings, but it it doesn't uh, it doesn't go overboard. It's not schmaltzy, um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the uh, the characters. And 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 we talked about this when we were talking about when we did the whole discussion on the film. Um, it's just so it's rife with just such great characters and and these these low lifes, uh, these gangsters, and and you know just downtrodden people that you know show these signs of genuine heart and warmth and i I think it's just it's just a sweet movie i think it's just really great yeah it's it's one that that i like a lot and and like i said i i I love ned sparks in that film he's a a definite uh supporting actor contender for me yes uh my number three though is uh set in a similar kind of world it's it's lewis milestone's hallelujah i'm a bum with uh, Al Jolson, and it's uh, it's a musical. It, the The songs are written by uh, uh, Richard Rogers and, and Lawrence Hart, and it's it's a, an odd movie. Uh, Jolson plays the uh, he's the mayor of Central Park, and there's all of these guys who live in the park in the middle of the depression, and they're all like homeless. Mm-hmm. And he is friends with the actual mayor of New York, who's played by Frank Morgan. And they become involved in a love triangle as Morgan kind of breaks up with some girl and she tries to kill herself and Jolson saves her. And then, you know, maybe Morgan wants her, wants her back. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic movie. And it's got some, some great supporting performances, not just from Frank Morgan, who, you know, is best known as, as the Wizard of Oz, but he's, he's really terrific here. He's great in everything. Yeah. And, uh, but also uh, Harry Langdon, who is uh, a silent comedy star, plays another one of the uh, kind of denizens of the park. But unlike all of the all of the bums, he actually has a job. He picks up trash, and he's always lecturing them from a, a socialist perspective about their need to work uh, instead of just kind of sucking off the uh, the capitalist uh, plutocrat oligarchy. He's really funny, Harry Langdon. Harry for Langdon. the people, have you seen any Langdon uh, like this silent is, features? This is the only thing I've seen from him, but but I I think he's hilarious in in Hallelujah I'm a Bum. Yeah, I, I this is also it. the only uh, Al Jolson I've seen. I, I haven't seen the Jazz Singer. From what I understand, it's not a very good movie. 
but no. but he's he is really charming here and kind of a, a Gene Kelly type performance as just this happy go lucky guy who's really charming and everybody loves him. Well, I that's love a great him too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a great pick. I need uh, it's another one I need to see and uh, another one that I I long to see. Uh, my number three pick is, is another one I also just mentioned: uh, Testament of Doctor Mabuza uh, from Fritz Lang, and I don't really know. What else I can say about it? Um, I, I just I th- I think it really is a crackerjack film that um, is is deeper and and more expansive than your typical kind of crime film. And I and I mentioned I touched on a little bit of why that is uh, when I was talking about Lang directing it. Um, but yeah, I, I have nothing else to say about it. It's great, and there's a there's a Criterion uh, set of it. That's out. It's been out for years and years and years, and that's actually how I first saw it. And uh, it was great when we ran Metro Classics because uh, whenever it was always great whenever we'd run something that Criterion owned, and and we were going to do it on digital because they were the only studio that would send us a brand new copy and then let us keep it. And so, <laughs> so I got you know what else did I get from Criterion? Oh, I got F for Fake. I got a, a free copy of F for Fake from Criterion for. Uh, Metro Classics, and so I'm kicking myself now for not just us doing uh, Criterion releases every week. (laughs) My DVD collection, my collection would have been just that much more amazing. But uh, Testament of Doctor Mabuza, go see. And oh, I should mention it's um, it's the second of Lang's three Mabuza films. He he did a silent uh, about ten years prior. Um, and then his final film in in what sixty six I think was a was a revisiting of, of the of this character um, this crime boss so to speak um, so that there's another element. My number two pick is also a film from across the pond but a different pond. It's uh, Hiroshi Shimizu's Japanese Girls at the Harbor, which I think. I might be the biggest fan of because I've never heard anyone else talk about this movie. It's uh, Criterion put well, it's, out. An, it's underseen. I mean, I you know. Yeah, I don't. Criterion okay. put out a, a Hiroshi Shimizu Eclipse set a few years ago, and that's and that's how I saw it. It's uh, it's the only silent film in the set, and it's uh, it's basically a, a melodrama about these two girls, and they're involved. Uh, one of them is involved with a a guy who's uh, kind of disreputable, but uh, uh, he, uh, and he cheats on, on the girl with uh, some floozy and she ends up shooting that girl in a church. And then years go by and the girl who shot the other girl is now a prostitute living in a different city. And she returns to her hometown to find that the guy is now married to her former best friend. And then she just ends up happening, happening to live next to the girl that she shot all those years ago. And then everything kind of unravels from there. And it's, it's a strange movie in that it's, it's really, really beautifully composed. It's, it's just these fantastic uh, shots incorporating like negative space of like the sky above. Uh, uh, it's set in Yokohama, but I'm not sure if it's actually shot there. Uh, there's these great trees. There's uh, the the shot in the, in the church is really fascinating in that it's a series of of axial cuts getting closer and closer to the girl and then backing away after she after she shoots the other one. Uh, 
it's a beautiful film to look at and it's it's beautiful in its uh kind of compassion for all of these characters like they're all a little bit awful as human beings but Shimizu never really judges them like you you see their point of view and you get to really understand them and feel for them even though they they tend to do terrible things it's, I tried to. I, I would like to say that I, I know of your uh, absolute affection for this film, and I, I was hoping to get to it um, prior to the show because I, I thought maybe it'd be something good to discuss. But unfortunately, the version that's available on YouTube is uh, not subtitled at all, uh, <laughs> and I figured that's probably not the best way to watch this. So Pro- probably uh, not. Uh, I, I did rewatch it because the first time I saw it, I loved the movie so much that uh i wasn't I, I didn't really trust how much i loved it because because i've never seen anyone else really talk about it and and feel about it the same way i do so i rewatched it a couple of nights ago and my reaction was maybe not as you know kind of ecstatic as the first time i saw it but it's still a really great movie and and enough that i think it's it's the second best film of 1933 yeah and you know, this is a good year, so that's that's saying something. Uh, my number two film is uh, King Kong. I mentioned it earlier, and I that's one that I just rewatched yesterday, I believe it was. And uh, God, what a movie! I mean, cinema was made for King Kong. I mean, that movie is just—it's almost perfect. I mean, it's a, it's a five star movie. It's almost perfect. It's kind of racist, so it's not perfect. Perfect. Um, <laughs> But the racism is is fascinating too in the movie. Um, you know, if you look at it from an academic standpoint or historical standpoint. Um, but as just an entertainment, movies don't get better than the original King Kong. Um, I mentioned the stop motion work um, that I think is is just peerless in the film. I mean, the the, the scene of Kong holding the log. And tw- and twisting the guys off the log to have them fall into the down a cliff or whatever, um, it's it's just stunning. I don't know. How, I still don't know how they did it. I mean, it's just crazy. Um, but also, uh, it's a great portrait of of Hollywood vanity. Um, Carl Denham's character is just uh, this, you know, mad visionary who will go to any lengths to get the shot he wants or to get the, you know, the ape that's going to make his career and stuff. And he's willing to risk, you know, everybody's lives <laughs> um, to, to achieve that. Um, and, and the movie's also 80 years later, still just terrifying. The first shot, of, the first close up of, of Kong is, uh, it makes your heart stop for a second. I mean, it is a terrifying movie. Uh, and I think it's just the bee's knees. I just love King Kong. I think it's great. Uh, I think it's great too. It's, it's my number six, actually. Uh, I do think that the, that the weak link is, is Fay Ray. I like Fay Ray. She's, she's okay. She's, she's she's very pretty. She's very pretty. She's Canadian. Did you know that? Um, She's no Naomi Watts, you know. I mean, if yeah. if I was going to compare it to the Peter Jackson version, which uh, I do love uh, a lot, uh, I I would say that the casting of Naomi Watts is is maybe the only uh, thing that he does better because uh, Naomi Watts is amazing. But uh, she she does have a good scream. 
but that's that's about it. Uh, yeah, she's she's not much of an actress. <laughs> well, you know, ninety percent of the movie is her being carried by a monkey. So you know, yeah. I deal with it. I think we can uh, safely just now that we've reached number one, just talk about how awesome Duck Soup is. Because uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Duck Soup is the number one movie of 1933. It is. It's it's <laughs> you know it. I think it was, was it in my top ten this year? Uh, or was, the it in, was it in yours? I think it wasn't it was in, in mine. I think it was in mine last year and, and yours this year. No, it wasn't in my, what, what, I don't think it was in mine because it's in my go-to top ten of all time. And I know I cheated, but I can't remember. It, maybe it was. It's, it's Duck Soup. It's, yeah, it's, it's in it's, every top it's ten. It's one of our favorite day. movies. <laughs> It's the greatest. It's the greatest comedy of all time, and uh, you know the closest. I, I you know I think that the number twos and threes for me is is Spinal Tap and uh, The Big Lebowski, and the reason that those comedies are my favorites are because they're they're so rewatchable, you know. And there are comedies that I love that I think are really really funny, but you don't get the same mileage out of them as you do. Uh, with these movies and uh, Duck Soup is the greatest example of that where and th- and I think this is why the Marx Brothers are the greatest screen comedians of all time is that unlike a Mae West or even like a Charlie Chaplin or a Buster Keaton the fact that there were multiple styles in the mix at the same time you know sometimes I can watch Duck Soup and I'm on I'm on Harpo's wavelength you know and I'm just like sure diving into anything Harpo's doing. Well, but then other there's times... So, there's so much. They're so packed. It's like, so... I mean, the movie's it barely, it's barely an hour. I mean, yeah. it's really barely an hour. And um, there are jokes that work, you know, every time you watch it. And then there are jokes that, you know, I didn't get when I was seven years old. And I get them now, you know. And I, I think they're just, you know, hilarious and stuff. And it's got, you know, not only does it have the Marxes, um, who are just phenomenal but um the supporting cast uh headed of course as almost always um by margaret by margaret dumont who you know mrs teasdale i mean she she, (laughs) oh it's just she just deals with just the insanity and the scene my favorite scene with her in this movie well no well when uh when right right before the the mirror sequence and Chico Harpo and Groucho are all dressed exactly the same because Chico and Harpo are impersonating Groucho and they're going into uh, Mrs. Teasdale's room uh to get the plans and uh <laughs> Chico's in there and and he he offers to go she she's not feeling well so he offers to go get her a glass of water and and then Groucho comes in the room, and so Chico hides. And Groucho walks in the room, and, and Margaret Dumont says, "How about my glass of water?" And he goes, "I don't know. How about your glass of water?" Like that's just. Fun. Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned that this was my favorite of of Harpo's performances, and it's it's also my favorite Groucho performance. And and frankly, I'm I'm a little appalled that you picked up Puppet as your best lead performance over Groucho Marx. Well, I because as okay. great as that that puppet is, I mean, come on. Uh, I clearly I was I was reining myself in here because I was close to giving Leo McCary director. Uh, <laughs> I was close to 
you know, giving the whole thing away to Duck Soup because it is it is like my favorite movie ever. But uh, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I feel bad. I, I feel like I'm making bad podcasts by just like um, giving poor reenactments of scenes from that movie. But basically, when you talk about something you love that much, that's basically what I turn into as a blubbering idiot. And I'm yeah. sorry. Like, I, I I, think this was a good idea for an episode in, in doing, uh, you know, not talking about the films of 2013, but doing a, a year from the past. And 1933 is a fantastic year for a film. Like I, like I said, I've seen 44 movies and maybe 20 of them are really good. And there's probably a bunch that I still haven't seen that I I really should, but the the one flaw with it is that clearly there was there was going to be no drama about what our best film of the <laughs> year was, and you know maybe with with a, with a different year it might have, uh, you know it might not have been so anticlimactic here at the end. So we're, well, we're going to have I, to pick a more interesting year, a more competitive year next year. Yeah, I, I I do really like this idea, and I like I like changing the format of the show up a little bit to to highlight a, a year in particular, um, and especially you know uh, the reason we're doing this now is because there's all this you know hoopla and hype that inevitably comes with the current year that we're in, and you and I discussed this before. It, it's just exhausting, and it's nice to to take a step back from all that hype. Cause I, you know, I've gotten involved in that hype too. I remember last year around this time I was every free moment I had, I was going to the theater to catch um, those end of year movies, which I still really want to see the stuff that's coming out this year. But it's nice for me now to be like, you know what? I'll get to them when I get to them. You know, I don't need to feed into this hype machine, you know, yeah, well, the the whole the whole conception of the George Sanders show is is new movies, but also old movies, and maybe a little leaning on the old side, you know. Yeah. So, we'll 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 get to those other movies. Like I, I think in January we're planning to to watch some of the big uh, the big new films, like the uh, the Spike Jones movie and the Scorsese movie and the Coen Brothers movies. But but for now, I it's nice to uh, to dive into the past. <laughs> That should be the new name of the podcast. <laughs> Dive into All right. the past. Are we taking another music break? Yeah, let's uh let's listen to uh uh Fredonia's going to war. Yeah, to war. This is a fact we can't ignore. In case you haven't heard before, I think they think we're going to war. I think they think we're going to war. I think they think we're going to war. We're going to war.
right. So that that is our show for this week, and that is our final show for 2013. Uh, we're going to uh, undergo a bit of a schedule change. We're uh, due to uh, work obligations. We're going to be we're going to be putting out episodes every other week now instead of every week. You're killing me, Gilman. It's not my fault. I You're wearing me down. I don't have a job. I can do this. I know. Every I'm night. saying. I'm saying. The workload you've put on me the last 26 weeks has has aged me uh, by a good 15 years. So I need. I I'm my. I need to fortify my reserves here. So our next it's, episode will be the week of January 13th, and we're going to be talking about Martin Scorsese's new film, The Wolf of Wall Street along with uh, Marcel Lerbier's classic of uh, fresh French Impressionist cinema, L'Argent. From 1928. Starring, starring Brigitte Holm. Yes, it's 195 minutes, so, you know, you're gonna get need, ready, You're going to need the extra week to watch it. Well, and, I, I, and I'm going to... What I'm going to do with, you know, having more time to prepare is our conversation for the film will also last 195 minutes. Oh, so we're, we're going to come back... Swinging! Oh, oh, thank God! That'll be that'll be fantastic. <laughs> if you're down in La La Land uh, or thereabouts uh, at the beginning of the year, the uh, Egyptian theater in Hollywood um, is which is a beautiful theater. I, have you ever been there, Sean? I have been to Hollywood. I have not been to any movie theater in Los Angeles. Okay. Uh, it's it's a, it's a great little theater. Um, I saw the original House of House of Wax there in 3D during their uh, they do an annual 3D film festival uh, there, and I happened to be down there one year when they were doing it. But uh, anyway, if you are down there uh, Saturday, January fourth, uh, starting at 7:30 p.m., uh, the Egyptian is going to be showing the entire Back to the Future trilogy, uh, and I. I Mentioned this before on the show. I, I rewatched all these a uh, couple Thanksgivings ago, and uh, while it's you know in, indisputable that uh, the first film, Back to the Future, is perfect. I mean, it's it's just absolutely a perfect movie. Um, I was really surprised by Back to the Future Part Three. Uh, part Two is not so good. I used to love it as a kid, but it doesn't really hold up as well. But uh, Part Three, I was I was pleasantly surprised by the western. Uh, Interesting. You know, I, I always like the the second part much better than the third. The third one, the second one is is uh, for me on the rewatch. It was too um, too nihilistic, and it's very dark. And I don't think it really works all the way through. Um, I think it has interesting elements, and I really like what they do with the time travel elements in the film. But I think it's it's more of a a, a negative movie it, it leaves a sour taste in my mouth but back to the future three is just a lot of fun right on but anyway um, go see them all <laughs> uh i mentioned the van city theater last week and i'm going to to pick them again it's uh it's in vancouver and uh this is uh my question for you which do you think is better the new year's eve program of jacques demy's young girls of rochefort followed by a double feature of the hudsucker proxy and the big lebowski or on New Year's Day, a Woody Allen double feature of Hannah and Her Sisters and Love and Death, followed by a Demi double feature of Umbrellas of Shoreburg and The Young Girls of Rochefort. I gotta go. I gotta go. New Year's Day. I mean, that. I mean, that's 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 a tricky one. Uh, I, I, you know what? The correct answer. 
Go to both of them. Go to both of them. Yeah. Just get a ticket and just sleep in the aisle. Uh, it's It'll be worth it. Yeah, that's that's pretty bitchin', yeah. I must say. That's and a way those, to ring in the new year. Those those are all part of ongoing series that the Van State is doing. Uh, one on the Coens, one on Woody Allen, and one on, on Jacques Demy. So go to that theater and watch those movies. Yes. Do it. And that's our show for this week. We're going to, to leave with the, the number one hit song of 1933. This is Ethel Waters with Stormy Weather. Don't know why there's no sun up in the sky, stormy weather. Since my man and I ain't together, keeps raining all the time. Life is bare, gloom and misery everywhere, stormy weather. Just can't get my poor self together. I'm weary all the time, the time. So weary all the time. When he went away, the blues walked in and met me. If he stays away, old rocking chair will get me. All I do is pray the Lord above will let me walk in the sun once more. Can't go on. All I have in life is gone, stormy weather. Since my man and I ain't together. Raining all the time, keeps raining all the time. Around heavy hearted and sad, night comes around and I'm still feeling bad. Rain pouring down, blinding every hope I had. Beating and splattering drives me mad. Love, 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 love. This misery is just too much for me. Can't go on. All I have in life is gone. Stormy weather. Since my man and I ain't together, keeps raining all the time, keeps raining all the time.